Alright everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, as always, and I'm joined today by Dr. Michelle Scaliz Sugiyama. She is Senior Instructor at the University of Oregon Institute of Cognitive and Decision Sciences and an affiliate of the University of Oregon Anthropology Department. She is an evolutionary psychologist slash anthropologist who specializes in symbolic and aesthetic behavior with an emphasis on storytelling, art, and play. She publishes in both scientific and humanities journals and blogs for the Huffington Post, where she explores modern issues, trends, and behaviors in light of human evolutionary history. And those are precisely the topics that we're going to cover up today. So, Dr. Skalisugiyama, thank you a lot for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let's see. Today I want to focus the conversation in very specific topics that are storytelling, folklore, and also will, uh, to talk a little bit about play. So mm -hmm. le let's see. Uh, I guess that one of the most important questions to ask right at the beginning when we're, we're talking about human behavior from an evolutionary perspective is to ask what is the function of storytelling in human societies? Um, well, I think first you have to you have to um, make clear: Are you talking about an adaptive function or just um, you know function in the non-evolutionary sense? And I don't think that storytelling is an adaptation. So when I'm talking about function, I'm talking about um, function in sort of the cultural anthropology sense that, um, or in the sense that humans um, invent various cultural practices um, and tactics and techniques. Um, and so I think the, the main role that storytelling plays in human societies is um, to transmit information, to transmit knowledge. Um, and particularly in hunter-gatherer societies, um, it transmits local knowledge. So both practical knowledge, like ecological knowledge, um, knowledge about animal behavior, about um, you know how to track animals, animals, knowledge about plant properties or how to process plants, um, knowledge of um, the topography and various routes, travel routes through the landscape, um, and then also social knowledge such as um, what are the rules of your society, um, what might happen to you um, if you break those rules, um, you know, what the, the con negative consequences will be, how your people, what, what your people will do to you <laughs> if you break the rules. Um, and so it trans, so storytelling is used to transmit both of these types of knowledge. Um, and then sort of more broadly, um, storytelling, which is implied by the fact that storytelling is used to transmit information, um, storytelling can be used to manipulate the beliefs and behavior of conspecifics. Um, and um, that manipulation could be well-intentioned as when parents um, warn their children, um, you know, to beware of the saber tooth. Um, or it could be, um, you know, more uh, malign, um, as when you know people try to manipulate others um, into doing things that serve their interests, um, and and perhaps at the expense of that individual that you're manipulating, right? Um, so it can, storytelling can be used for good or for evil. It just depends on the individual. 
Yeah. Exactly. And it's very interesting that uh, at the very beginning of your answer, you referred to the fact that we have to be very careful when talking about something being an adaptation or not, because when we talk about adaptations, we usually refer to biological adaptations, right? But I mean, to determine that something is an adaptation, we really have to follow uh, some sort of scientific procedure it is not that easy because before historically people thought that everything was an adaptation but nowadays it is not really like that and we have things that are the result of byproducts and even things that are simply genetic drifts or something like that correct so, right. uh, so uh, we already established at least i think at the very beginning that uh, storytelling is not a biological adaptation by itself but right uh, right but but then I, I guess that and i've already had a lot of evolutionary psychologists and i also have had dr robert boyd on the show and he studies cultural evolution so mm -hmm. uh, apart from the biological aspect and adaptations and byproducts and all of those all of those stuff nowadays we have even another complication that is the fact that some things might be the result not directly of biological evolution but but of cultural evolution and some of them even an interplay between the two things and that's why we talk about gene culture coevolution for example so uh, even though storytelling by itself is not an adaptation a, a biological adaptation of course uh, I think it's very important to know where did it, uh, did it originate in our evolutionary history. Because uh, let's say that uh, it seems to me that we might have here a, pro a chicken and egg problem. Because let's say that, for example, one of the hypotheses on the table is that for some reason, we already had some adaptations, some cognitive adaptations for us to be able to process information as it is conveyed by storytelling uh, that allowed us to extract uh, relevant information from those stories, for example. But uh, uh, it is also possible that at a certain point people started using this method of transmitting information and it, it might have created, uh, let's say, an, an evolutionary pressure for our brains to process information coming from storytelling. Am, am I correct here or, or not? I hadn't really thought about that before, you know, that once people were telling stories, you know, would there be selection pressure on that? Um, but just backing up a little bit um, in talking in terms of the cognitive adaptations that storytelling is a byproduct of, I think there's a lot of adaptations at play in the behavior of storytelling. Um, perhaps the most important would be cooperation. Um, you know, we're highly motivated to help others and storytelling is a form of information sharing. Um, so there's that at play. And then obviously language. Um, it's really hard to tell a story without language, um, which is one of the points I make in my Origins of Storytelling class. Um, uh, it's, it's, um, you can try and tell a story like using pantomime or using a picture, 
Um, but it's not very efficient and it's not very precise. Um, so what I do in my class is I show them a picture. It's a cave painting. I think it's from Lascaux. Um, but you, you probably know it. It's a, a an aurochs, you know, the sort of ox-like animal. And, and then there's a man and the aurochs has been wounded and there's a spear and the man appears to be falling. And so there's clearly some sort of story going on there. Some event has happened. There's two characters, two agents. There's a conflict between them. And so at that point, I, t I asked my students, so, you know, what's the story? Tell me the story. And they can't tell the story. And it's um, so the, the point is, it's really hard without language to tell a story. And so I think language is a big um, a player. And I think also episodic memory, um, because episodic memory is basically a memory system dedicated to storing episodic knowledge, knowledge about events that happen, uh, personal events. Um, but um, so it's, it's a, a memory system designed to represent and store information about events and agents, um, you know, agents and their goals and the steps they take, the actions they take to attain their goals. And that's basically what the structure of a story is. And so I think storytelling may be hacking episodic memory. Um, and, um, and basically um, what storytelling enables us to do is expand our episodic memory uh, because uh, stories are, they simulate human experience. And so when you're engaging in a story world, you're having an experience. Um, it's kind of a fly on the wall experience where you're observing things happen in the world. So I tell my students, it's like the difference between, um, you know, being in a car accident or seeing a car accident happen. So storytelling is the latter. You know, you're watching an event happen, but it's still personal experience. And so I think what happens is that gets stored in our episodic memory and that provides us with more memories that we can use to um, generate future scenarios or novel scenarios. Uh, you know, mental time travel, that episodic memory is used to, um, that we generate future scenarios, plans, um, or novel scenarios, so imaginary events, um, using our episodic memory, using bits and pieces from it. So I think that's at play in storytelling. Um, and then also the agency system um, is, a, is really important. Um, Basically, what stories do is they um, they represent the goals and actions of agents um, and obstacles that they encounter um, in the course of pursuing their goals. Um, and that's basically what the agency system does. It tracks agents and their goals um, and how their behavior relates to their goals and um, and how um, the environment impedes um, or facilitates um, the attainment of those goals. Um, which is, you know, the same stuff that the agency system tracks. And so I think um, narrative structure, you know, the, the, ba the basic format that all stories take, I think that's the part of the agency system that kind of rises to the level of consciousness. And so we perceive that as narrative structure. Uh, but anyways, I think all of those things, all of those adaptations are at play in storytelling. But as for the question you raise is really interesting. Um, you know, once storytelling evolved, you know, what in what ways might selection have operated on it? And I've, I don't really have an answer. I've never, I haven't really thought about that. So <laughs> you have to catch me in a year or two. Maybe I'll have an answer. Oh, great. Perhaps I've just given you a topic for yeah. research. Yeah, paper. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> okay, great, great. Okay, so do you think that it would be uh, scientifically plausible to say that we already had these adaptations that we talked about, uh, that you talked about these cognitive adaptations uh, pr uh, previously, and then 
at a certain point in our evolutionary history, people started trying to transmit relevant information to other people in several different forms. And then there was sort of a, a cultural competition between those different forms of transmitting information and storytelling prevailed because it really went along with our cognitive innate mechanisms, let's say. Possibly. I mean, I don't know how we could ever know that, um, if, you know, other than traveling back in time. Um, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Um, um, yeah, I, I would think it would just be so obvious that language was the best way to communicate this information um, that, I mean, art visual art, um, ritual, things like that can be used to reinforce um, the information that's being transmitted in the story or um, guide attention. Um, you know, visual art totally taps into um, perceptual and cognitive biases to guide attention to, you know, certain pieces of information and away from others. Um, but um, but, but uh, I don't know exactly how that would have played out um, in ancestral environments. Um, but I'm just guessing it's just so much easier to tell a story with language that, you know, <laughs> people would have given up right away trying to draw the story. You know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So what are the, are there some main categories of information that um, are conveyed through storytelling that are related to, um, to evolutionary relevant problems like, for example, survival, reproduction, and also kin selection and reciprocal altruism, for example, and even perhaps others. Um, right. That was actually the first thing that caught my attention when I was in grad school is um, I noticed that there were um, recurrent themes across world folklore um, and, um, and that there seemed to be a relationship between these themes and the problems that hunter-gatherers recurrently have to deal with. Um, and, and the observation that there are recurrent themes in world folklore was not um, original to me. I mean, there's there was a long history of, um, sort of in the early days of anthropology and folklore, of um, people documenting this. Um, so, the for example, Arne and Thompson developed the motif index of folk literature, um, which document is they started in European with European fairy tales and folklore, um, but sort of documenting cross-cultural motifs, um, plot elements, um, uh, and that. But then that the the um, system that they developed, it turns out it's applicable worldwide. Lots of people have taken it and applied it to the folklore of other cultures. Um, and then, you know, Jung was, you know, sort of looking at cross, you know, universal cross-cultural themes or, you know, archetypes. Um, and prop, you know, identified, I forget how many, I think it's 36 or 37 common plots in world folklore. So that, it, that information was out there. Um, and what I noticed is that, um, there was a similarity between these universal themes and um, recurrent problems of hunter-gatherer lives, such as warfare and you know mating and child rearing, um, knowledge of animal behavior, things like that. Um, so what it looked like to me is that um, cross-culturally people are, gra when they tell stories, they're gravitating towards these topics. And the obvious question that that raises is why? Why, why, are, why is everybody telling stories about the same thing? Is it just because these topics are on their minds, you know, a lot because they're important problems? Or is storytelling being 
used instrumentally in some way to deal with these problems. Um, and so then I really started looking at the information that's in the stories. And I saw that indeed, there's a lot of practical information in there. Um, if a lot of it's um, encoded, um, but um, if you if you understand hunter-gatherer life, uh, it becomes really clear. You can see the information very clearly. Um, but if you don't know anything about hunter-gatherer life, it's kind of hard to see the information. Uh, but once you start thinking like a hunter-gatherer, the, the information kind of leaps out at you. Um, you know, especially information about animal behavior and plant properties and things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's interesting because at a certain point there you, you refer to Jungian archetypes uh, and I guess that uh, through a different means because he didn't have access to our current evolution, evolutionary and cognitive knowledge, Jung was trying to get at what are, were some of the recurrent themes and characters across different cultures. So do, do you think that uh, now with the more modern evolutionary cognitive approach, let's say, what he was trying to do in terms of the archetypes could be, could be scientifically vindicated, let's say? Yeah, I think the idea is basically sound. Um, you do see um, character types that recur across um, forager oral tradition. The trickster and the hero are the most obvious. Um, and I think they're actually complementary. Um, so the trickster um, in forager oral tradition, um, this is not true in um, more complex societies, stratified societies, but in forager oral tradition, he's almost always a bad guy. Um, there's a few exceptions to this. In some cultures, he's seen as an ancestor who long ago made changes to the world that benefited humans. But for the most part, he's regarded as a model of bad behavior, of how not to behave. I, I call him the anti-cooperator. Um, he's highly antisocial. Um, and so, and um, in a lot of, um, well, not a lot of cultures, but in in some in the ethnographic record, um, you will sometimes come across um, indigenous for informants saying, "Oh, yeah, we tell those stories to our kids because we don't want them to behave, you know, like coyote or raven or whoever it is." Um, and so, you know, they'll say to their kids, "Don't do what coyote did. You know, he made things really bad for us long ago. Um, you know, he's a bad guy." Um, so, um, so the trickster sort of models how not to behave and also the consequences of antisocial behavior because the trickster, almost always something bad happens to him. He's ridiculed or he's kicked out of the group or he dies. Um, and then because these stories are set in, you know, long, long ago when magical things could happen, he comes back to life. But still, you know, he gets punished in all these various ways. Um, and then the hero is sort of the opposite. The hero is model good behavior, uh, but in a really specific context, in the context of aggression and violence. Um, so um, every society, uh, every hunter-gatherer society faces the problem of um, self-defense. How, how do you defend yourself if some other group has hostile intentions towards you and they attack you? Um, and so you need people who are willing to step up to the plate and defend your group and who are capable of doing that. So that means you want to encourage your big, strong people who are good at fighting to protect the group. And that's basically what the hero is. The hero is, is a guy who's really good at fighting. He's typically good at hunting and good at warfare, and he's big and strong. He's um, undefeatable or virtually undefeatable, um, and he protects his group. When this group is in danger, he, you know, he fights off monsters. He fights off enemies, um, but he never turns his aggression against his own people. So his aggression is directed um, at outgroups, at threats. 
not at his own people. And so I think what's going on in hero stories is they're they're modeling this behavior. Um, they're praising um, aggression and violence that's directed at enemies. Um, and so encouraging these men who could be potentially very dangerous to their own people, right? They could use their their strength and their fighting skill to bully people in their own group, right? Steal people's wives, steal their food. Um, but hero stories encourage these men to use their abilities to help their people instead of hurt them. Um, so, um, so those are, as far as I know, the hero and the trickster are universal. Um, but what happens with, with the trickster in um, agricultural and, um, well, agricultural societies um, is that the hero becomes kind of a rebel. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the trickster becomes kind of a, a hero slash rebel who fights the system, fights the power, fights the man. Um, and, um, and I don't really study um, folklore in agricultural societies, but I think that would be an interesting thing to explore um, for you know, anyone who wants a, needs a topic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, about the characters, do you think that uh, some of the characters that occur cross-culturally in storytelling, that perhaps uh, people might have decided to include them in the stories uh, to for people of their group to be aware that perhaps certain people have some innate proclivities to behave in those ways, but also for them to know about both the positive and negative roles that they might play in their respective societies. Yeah, I think that's a partly what's going on too, is because um, a lot of stories are directed at children. And so, um, yeah, trickster stories might, might make children aware of the fact that there are people out there who might have hostile intentions towards you or uh, malignant intentions. They might be trying to trick you or hurt you or, you know, get your stuff. Um, and, uh, and then they also, to a certain degree, these stories can illustrate possible ways in which people might deceive you. Although some of them are pretty outlandish, you know, in some of the trickster stories, he has some pretty crazy schemes <laughs> that you couldn't do in real life. Um, but yeah, it, it's, you know, may increase social awareness of, you know, that, yeah, there's, there's people out there in the world that you have to watch out for. Yeah. Can't trust them. <laughs> yeah. And maybe warning signs to look for, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. But uh, is it also the case that we can use stories, particularly from traditional societies, to learn also more about the types of problems that people uh, had to deal with. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think you can, you know, look at the stories um, that were collected among recent hunter-gatherers, and you can um, look at um, th recurrent themes, recurrent problems um, that are referenced in these stories, and you can use that um, to extrapolate uh, problems that um, hunter-gatherers living tens of thousands of years ago faced because um, they were living under similar conditions. You have to be a little careful because uh, modern hunter-gatherers have access to um, things that, you know, ancestral hunter-gatherers didn't. Um, but they still, they have, they their subsistence is the same. Um, they're living in uh, small-scale societies, you know, very small populations with low population den densities. So a lot of the conditions are similar. So I think it's um, legitimate to, um, you know, they're facing the same problems. And so it's legitimate to extrapolate those problems to, to past hunter-gatherers. Um, so yeah, things like warfare and, um, you know, hunting and going out and gather, you know, what, what time of year do you, you know, is this plant available? Um, 
th those sorts of things. Um, yeah, you can find that information in the stories of modern hunter-gatherers and then figure out what our what our ancestors had to deal with, what problems they had to deal with. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a good example is um, I did a study of warfare, um, the fitness cost of warfare for women, um, and I used Forge of War narratives to do that. So um, I just looked for um, evidence in these stories of um, either a woman or her close kin, so children, husband, brother, um, father, um, being killed or captured in warfare, just to see how women were affected, and whether they were affected, and to what degree. And in all the societies that I surveyed, um, I think it was 45, if I'm remembering correctly, um, women were indeed suffering these costs. And so um, regardless of whether um, the adaptation for engaging in coalitional intergroup aggression is a male-specific adaptation, once warfare existed, then it impacted women. And so um, women's um, psychology might have been shaped by warfare, um, even if they don't have adaptations for engaging in it. Once it began occurring, then given that there were fitness costs for women, it might have shaped their psyche. Um, so there's another topic if someone wants to <laughs> look into it. Yeah, these areas of, let's say, evolutionary psychology and anthropology and others uh, are uh, virtually infinite. So right. <laughs> that, that, right. that's what I'm getting through these conversations. Yeah. Okay, okay so uh, is storytelling and perhaps even other aspects of folklore uh, present in every studied human society? Um, yeah, um, you know, in Don Brown's book on human universals, he lists storytelling as a human universal. Um, yes, as far as I know, there's no known society, um, you know, past or present that lacks storytelling. Um, and interestingly, oral storytelling um, exhibits similarities across cultures. Um, so um, as uh, cross-culturally, in, in, I've only looked at forger um oral tradition, but um, but it's also been reported by ethnolinguists for other types of societies. Um, so oral storytelling is characterized by the use of extensive communication, um, or what Gurgley and Kassibar call natural pedagogy. Um, and this is what um, linguists call the paralinguistic aspects of communication. Um, so extensive communication is um, modifications um, made um, in communication when it's addressed at infants. It's also called mother ease. Um, so it's where people modify prosody. Um, they, they modify their communication in a lot of different ways um, when they're directing their communication at infants. Um, and so it's things like um, raising the pitch of your voice, using repetition, um, modulating the volume, maybe speaking more loudly, you know, to emphasize some things. Um, and it also includes things like using gestures, um, using uh, exaggerated facial expression. Um, and so this is, um, the, the argument is that this serves a pedagogical purpose that it indicates to um, infants and young children that um, a pedagogical event is about to occur, that um, information um, is about to be transmitted, um, uh, generic information, information that can be applied beyond the present context um, you know, information that you can use over and over again in, in other con in other aspects of life or other other times in life. Um, and it also signals the recipient, the target of the communication. 
Um, well, it turns out that the same type of communication is used in oral storytelling. Um, oral storytellers, they use gesture, they exaggerate their facial expression, they change the pitch of their voice, the timbre. Um, they're, they're doing exactly the same thing. And so um, to me, that suggests that storytelling was an early form of teaching. Um, and it, you know, coupled with the fact that storytelling transmits generic information, um, you know, information that you can use again and again. Um, and, um, and, and then it, it's using this extensive communication. Those two things together suggest that storytelling is being used to teach. Um, and it's interesting that it's, it's cross-cultural. Um, so that suggests that, um, you know, this, uh, may be very, a very ancient phenomenon and that storytelling might be one of the earliest forms of teaching in human environments. Mm -hmm. uh, just about mother is uh, because uh, I I've also had on my show Dr. David F. Lancy and he does evolutionary oh. anthropology of childhood uh, and he told me that through some cross-cultural studies he concluded that mother is is not a human universal that there are certain societies that where mothers uh, really don't use mother is I, I, I don't know if you have something to say about that or not the, um, my understanding is that the research shows that there's some variation across cultures in how pronounced it is um, but that it's definitely there um, and um, yes yeah, so I don't know where he's getting his information but because um, that's really not his primary uh, area of research um, and um, so the people who do study mother ease um, as far as I know the consensus is that it's um, it's, it looks like it's universal. Obviously, not every society has been studied, but um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, okay, uh, but, but uh, about, uh, now taking again the topic of human universals, because uh, is it f a fair assessment to say that uh, we as humans uh, across all cultures all share the same kinds of cognitive adaptations but cultural variation occurs because these same adaptations are fine-tuned to each specific environment. Yeah, I think that's a basic premise of um, evolutionary psychology is that complex adaptations are expected to be facultative, meaning that they're calibrated to local conditions. They, they have mechanisms built into them that enable them to be calibrated to local conditions, um, which is probably instrumental in us colonizing, you know, so many different habitats. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that's the basic idea is that you, you Cultural variation arises in large part from um, these adaptations being calibrated to local conditions, right? and in local conditions vary. So you end up with, you know, cultural variation, variation in behavior. Okay. Okay. So would you say that perhaps uh, the function that storytelling serves in human societies also manifests itself? in the narrative aspects of religion, for example? Well, I think I mean, storytelling is a really effective way of transmitting information about agents and actions in the world. And a lot of religion, religious belief, is rooted in um, beliefs that there, you know, there are gods who are agents, right? And they perform actions. And um, those actions either created the world or shaped the world, or those actions provide um, the model for how we're supposed to behave or, you know, what we're supposed to do, what we're not supposed to do. And so because storytelling, that's basically what it, it's, you know, it represents 
agents and actions. Um, so it's a really effective tool for transmitting that that knowledge. Um, but other than that, I don't really study religion, so um, so I wouldn't have much more to add to that. Um, but yeah, I'm not surprised that um, a lot of religious belief is is narrative. Um, in format. Um, and you could just look at the Bible. Um, a lot of it is stories, right? There's some like lists. Um, and, you know, research shows that people are not very good at remembering information when it's presented like in a textbook format or a list format. They remember information much better when it's presented in a narrative format. And I think that has to do with that's how we're designed to organize happenings in the world, right? The episodic memory, the agency system. Um, but um, so there's, you know, some lists like the Ten Commandments and, you know, people manage to learn that. Um, but a lot of the information in the Bible is stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. And before in the interview, you said that at a certain point that perhaps uh, some aspects of storytelling serve the function uh, of scaring children uh, to, to try for them to avoid certain types yeah. of behaviors, perhaps, and perhaps religion also serves the function of scaring adults. Yeah, it's <laughs> so. precautionary. Yeah, so that's one of my favorite things um, to look at in um, hunter-gatherer um, oral tradition is uh, I just I came across these just anecdotal observations in various cultures um, where either the anthropologist or the informant will say, yeah, we tell our children stories about monsters to scare them into, you know, obeying basically, um, not wandering off from camp at night. Basically they're using them to scare children um, out of doing things that might hurt them, right? So wandering off from camp at night, um, going, hanging out around dangerous places like marshes and swamps, things like that. Um, and also to um, scare them, um, prevent them from eating food while their parents are away from camp. So there's stories about monsters that will, when the parents are like out hunting and gathering um, and the older children are in camp, um, there's monsters that will come and prey on the children who have eat, been eating food while their parents are gone. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, some people might say that's child abuse, right? But um, for hunter-gatherers, it's just kind of... It's fact of what, you know, you sort of need to do this, right, so that you don't starve to death. <laughs> yeah, your kids don't eat up all your food, you know, while you're gone. Yeah, exactly. It's a matter of survival. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we, we have these cognitive adaptations, but I guess that perhaps, if not all of them, at least some of them need to be fed with environmental information in order to develop properly and and i guess that one of them is a theory of mind so would you say that storytelling would also be important for children to develop theory of mind um i i thought that that might be a possibility um and i kind of explored that idea about 10 years ago in my article on reverse engineering narrative um but i I've changed my mind since then um, for a number of reasons. Um, one is that um, you need theory of mind in order to tell a story. Um, you need both to tell a story and to process narrative because, as I was saying, narrative is all about agents. Um, and so you have to be, you know, under, be able to infer their goals and how their behavior relates to their goal and how their goals interact with the goals of other characters, how they conflict, how they coincide. Um, and then just as from the storyteller's perspective, you need to understand that your audience has a mind and that they can understand what you're saying, right? So you have to have theory of mind before storytelling can even occur. 
And so it seems illogical to me that you would make the development of theory of mind, you know, that, that this would evolve where, where storytelling or theory of mind, the development of theory of mind would be dependent upon storytelling, a behavior that's dependent upon theory of mind, right? Does, logically, it doesn't make sense. Um, and then also, when you look at um, hunter-gatherer uh, stories, um, there's not a lot of introspection. Um, the stories don't spend a lot of time um, talking about what the character's thinking and feeling or what the character's thinking and feeling about what other characters are thinking and feeling. That doesn't seem to be the point of these stories. It's, they're just not focused on that. And um, I, so, so that, you know, there's, you're not getting that. Uh, if, if stories were about building and developing theory of mind, you'd think they'd be focused on that uh, or there'd be more of that in, in the stories. And then also there um, was a study done a few years ago, it was published in Science, um, that tested this idea. And they found that, um, you know, reading a story does improve theory of mind function. I forget how it was measured. Um, but it, but it only improved, the, the benefits only lasted for about 10 minutes. So it looks like it's a priming effect, right? So there, so there really isn't any um, quantitative evidence that um, participating in story worlds actually builds or um, improves theory of mind. Um, so, so for all those reasons, I've become skeptical. I don't, I don't think that's primarily what's going on um, in storytelling. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's, very well. Yeah. Uh, you, you've also studied a little bit uh, play behavior in human societies. So, mm -hmm. uh, what is the function that it serves? Does it have also a developmental function that is for children to prepare through play to fill certain roles in society or something like that? Well, in the ethological literature on play, which looks at play in, you know, across all species, um, there's basically two camps. One camp says that play is an adaptation and the other camp says that it's not. Um, and so the people who believe that it's an adaptation argue that, yes, it has a developmental function, that it, it develops skills or knowledge sets or abilities that the organism needs later in the lifespan or is statistically likely to need later in the lifespan. Um, but um, Tubi and Cosmetes have a much more nuanced um, formulation of this hypothesis um, that I, I think is really compelling. Um, so the way they put it is um, complex adaptations um, uh, don't emerge. Uh, well, first of all, a lot of them aren't present at birth, right? They have to develop and grow um, and they don't develop and grow overnight. They have to be assembled, right? Um, and so they argue that complex adaptations have two modes, um, functional mode, when the um, adaptation is fully developed and it's performing its evolved function, like like the generation of speech, right, language, um, and then they have an organiz organizational mode, and that's when the um, the adaptation is being built, um, and um, so it's growing and developing. That would be development, right? Um, and during this developmental phase, the the adaptation might need um, information inputs um, in order to develop properly or be calibrated, you know, to the lo to local conditions. And these inputs can either be built into the adaptation itself, or they might be available in the organism's environment. And language is a really good case, uh, example of this because some of the information is built into the, the adaptation, like universal grammar, right? Um, but some of the information is available in the environment, like the phonemes, like the, the, the local sounds the sounds that are used in the local language, right? So we, we get those inputs from our environment, but we get the grammar um, inputs from the mind, from uh, from the adaptation itself. Um, 
And so uh, I think this is a really interesting way of looking at play. Basically, what, what you do is you look at, you know, an adaptation and you ask yourself, okay, how does this develop and does it need environmental inputs and how might the organism get those environmental inputs? So what I did is I applied that to, um, to warfare. Um, how do, uh, let's just, let's grant that it's a male specific adaptation. So then how do males acquire the skills that they need in order to engage in coalitional intergroup aggression? Um, and so what I did is I looked at team um, sports, team contact sports. Um, and uh, I, I looked at those because um, there's a lot of research in the ethological um, literature on dyadic play fighting. So two uh, it's also called rough and tumble plays, it's like play wrestling. Yeah. Okay. And um, and play fighting is believed to develop skills that animals need for actual fighting. And so I thought, well, team contact sports, that's basically team play fighting. It's like dyadic play fighting, except you're play fighting in teams. And, um, and so maybe that um, develop skills that are used in um, coalitional intergroup aggression, um, operationalized as lethal rating because that's the form that warfare um, initially took. And so um, I basically took my cue from Don Simon's study of play fighting in rhesus monkeys, um, where he argued that you know if play is an adaptation, then you have to look for design. And um, so where do you look for the design? Well, play fighting is motor play. So you look at the motor patterns. That's where you'd expect to see design. So I did the same thing for team play fighting. Um, I looked at the motor patterns that are involved in, um, you know, various forms of contact sports uh, that, that are played in forager societies. Um, and I looked um, at, well, what we did is we inferred the motor patterns used in lethal rating um, from descriptions of lethal rating. And then we looked to see whether the there was a correlation between the motor patterns used in lethal rating and the motor patterns used in team play fighting. And sure enough, they were the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, I think play builds skills. That I think it's developmental and function, a, a lot of play. Uh, and and um, when you look at the games that hunter-gatherers uh, play cross-culturally, um, some of them really clearly appear to develop skills related to hunting, or, you know, the tasks of hunter-gatherer lives, so things like hunting and fighting. Um, so, for example, one really common game is called hoop and pole. Um, there's all sorts of variations on this, um, and, but the basic idea is you have, um, you roll an object along the ground. Um, in hoop and pole, it's a hoop. Um, and it has spokes, kind of like a bullseye, you know, when you're for, in darts. And then um, the players throw um, darts or spears at, they try to throw them through the hoop as it's rolling on the ground. Um, and you get different points depending on, you know, what part of the, you know, what, where in the spokes you, you know, through the spear through. So like in darts, right? Uh, depending on how close you get to the bullseye, the center, you get more points. Um, and so I think this is pretty obvious practice for um, hunting animals that are, you know, fast moving and low to the ground, like rabbits. Um, so, um, yeah, so there's just lots of games that appear to develop these skills from, you know, really simple things like target practice, you know. You have a boat, little toy bow and arrow and you shoot it at a target um, to things like hoop and pole um, and other games where like there's an Inuit group that has a game where they basically throw rocks at each other and dodge them. Right. <laughs> and they do that for fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
<laughs> yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Okay, so be, because uh, storytelling and perhaps all, also other forms of art uh, are so important or have been so important during our evolutionary history to transmit relevant information among the people that are part of a certain group, a certain tribe or a certain human society, is it because of that that artists are held even in modern societies in such high regard and even perhaps artistic abilities might have been the targets of sexual selection as some people propose. I don't really look at these behaviors in modern societies and partly because there's so many variables at play. Um, and um, I think of, of, in modern societies, it, art is sort of being commodified and so that might be partly why artists are valued um, because it's the things that Jeffrey Miller talks about. You can sort of advertise your taste and Steve Pinker too, um, um, you know, depending on, you know, what, what arts you, you can advertise your wealth, right? If you can spend a lot of money for, you know, um, but just looking at hunter gatherer societies, um, I think it's actually the other way around. I don't think it's artistic abilities that were selected for. I think um, what art, enables people to do is advertise abilities that are useful in everyday life. Um, so for example, um, creativity, um, which basically what creativity is, is the ability to come up with novel solutions to problems and uh, very quickly. Um, so, you know, you're in a crisis situation, you need a solution, you need one fast, right? So it's really valuable to have people in your group who can right away analyze that problem and come, you know, imagine a solution to it and implement, come up with a way to actually implement that solution. Um, and so I think that's why um, people who are um, skilled artists who are very creative, they, they catch our attention because we're probably designed to notice those things. And that, you know, of the skills we're um, designed to pay attention to, attention to in, in other humans, that would be an important one. Right. Um, it's very valuable. Um, and um, there is evidence that storytellers are held in high regard in hunter gatherer societies. Um, I haven't come across a lot of evidence that um, artists, I mean, a lot of hunter gatherers don't really have a concept of artist um, and art. Um, so I don't see a lot of evidence that artists um, are held in high regard or even, you know, good musicians or dancers. Um, they may be appreciated. They're, um, but um, but they don't necessarily have higher status as far as I can tell. Um, but storytellers are respected, um, and I think uh, good storytellers are respected. And I think there's um, the reason for that is that um, they have a lot of knowledge. Um, they, they, if, if they have mastered the repertoire of their culture stories, then that means not only do they know all the stories, but they know all the information that's contained in the stories. Um, and that's really, really valuable. And um, so if a person both knows that information and is really skilled at delivering it, uh, can present it in a very accessible way and a memorable way um, so that people listening can retain that information, then that's really valuable. Um, so in other words, a really good storyteller is sort of um, both a teacher and a library in one uh, because in hunter-gatherer cultures are oral so they can't store their knowledge in books or you know writing libraries the ways that we store our information um, they store knowledge is stored in people and so a, a good storyteller is is basically a font of knowledge um, and in general in hunter-gatherer societies older people tend to be very highly respected 
And I think it's because they have more experience than others um, because they've lived so long and experience is knowledge. Um, So they have more knowledge and they've managed to survive, you know, to a ripe old age, which says something. They must know what they're doing. Right. (laughs) Um, And so um, so I think that's sort of those things are at play in um, storytellers being highly valued. Um, But uh, but I can't really I haven't seen any evidence that, you know, musicians and dancers and, you know, people who are good at painting bodies or, um, you know, doing rock art. Um, I don't I don't know that they, they actually are um, highly respected or they, that they have more prestige than other people. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you think that it was oral storytelling that after the development of writing systems, Uh, gave a basis for fictional literature. And I'm asking because it seems that uh, in written stories we get most of the same elements that we find in oral storytelling, if I'm not mistaken, of course. Do you mean thematic elements or formal elements? Because there are real formal differences between um, oral storytelling and written storytelling. Uh, I guess that I was referring to the thematic elements. Thematic, yeah. Oh, yeah, you see the same themes. Um, Yeah, even in modern literature, um, you know, mating and warfare, um, child rearing. um, And um, there's there's some changes. So um, so travel um, is a pretty common theme in in modern literature. Um, But um, but it's it's a little bit different from, because travel is a recurrent theme in um, forager oral tradition, uh, but it's usually about identifying landmarks and, um, and routes, travel routes. Um, so um, a, a given landmark may, attri- may be attributed to the actions of an ancestor. Uh, so an an- you know, the ancestor came along and transformed um, the mountain or, or you know, created a, a a stream or something like, or deposited resources. Um, but um, in modern novels, um, tra- when travel um, is a, when, you know, the character is basically, uh, you're following the travels of the of the character, it's not so much about identifying landmarks um, and travel routes. Um, it, it's, yeah. So I, uh, and I haven't really thought, you know, analyzed those, travel stories in modern environments. So I can't really speak to um, whether they're performing a practical function, um, but in hunter-gatherer storytelling, they definitely are. Um, but yeah, I think, you, you know, we still have, in modern environments, um, we still face many of the same problems that our hunter-gatherer ancestors did, finding a mate, rearing children, um, getting, you know, getting food. Um, and so a lot of those same themes um, are, are present in written literature. Mm-hmm. And yeah. isn't it also to be expected that even in agricultural societies, storytelling uh, still played a big role, a, a big so, uh, social role? Because, I mean, throughout perhaps 99.9% of human history, virtually no one except for a very tiny elite even uh, had access to written literature, right? Right, right. No, I, I mean, probably um, 
Yeah, probably the overwhelming majority of all storytelling that's ever occurred on the planet was oral um, because for, for the reason that you mentioned that um, literacy is a recent development. Um, you know, even when writing was invented, most people couldn't read it. Um, and um, and texts were few and far between until the invention of the printing press um, and until books became affordable for, you know, the common, um, you know, middle class or lower class people. Um and so, yeah, and, and just also a lot of our storytelling occurs in the in ordinary everyday conversation, uh, and that's oral. It's not written. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think it's um, it's still even today it's primarily oral. Um, or well, and it, even if you look at film and drama and TV, right? A lot of that is oral too. It's visual and oral, um, but it's characters talking, right? Um, it's not it's not written. We don't. We don't read movies and and TV shows, right? We we listen to them and we watch them, which is a lot like you know someone telling a story, right? Um, except it's actors acting it out instead of just one person. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I guess that even in modern industrial societies, many people don't even read books. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> they go straight to the movie, yeah. Yeah, straight to the movie or the podcast yeah. or something. Yeah, like which that. is unfortunate because the book is almost always better. But um... <laughs> yes, that's yeah. true. That's true, and you usually learn much more through the book than through the podcast or any audiovisual means. So yeah, <laughs> even though I'm saying something that works against me, but right, okay. right, no, same here. <laughs> If I study oral narrative, but, um, but yeah, sometimes the book is, I mean, not that there aren't, you know, there's great TV shows out there and, and films, but, um, but it's usually impossible to get everything in the book into the, the film or the, the series. Yeah. So you miss something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's for sure. Okay, yeah. so Dr. Skelly Sugiyama, uh, just before we go, would you like perhaps to share with people where they can find your work on the internet? Um, well, I'm on the usual platforms, you know, ResearchGate, um, Academia, and then I have a website through the U of O. Um, the, the, it's my lab, the Human Animal Lab. Um, so if you Google that, that will come up, and it it has all my publications on there and and other things. So if people are interested, um, thanks for letting me do that. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was really a pleasure to have you on the show. It was really a fun uh, conversation, I think so. And perhaps, I don't know, I, I've already told you that I want to have your husband on the show. Perhaps yeah. someday I could have you again on the show as well. That would be fun. I had a good time. Thanks. Hi guys, thank you so much for watching this video until the end. I would also like to ask you to please pay a visit to my Patreon page and see if you can make a pledge there. I would really be thankful for that. And finally, I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanche, Per Helga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gelinas and Jim Frank. Thank you a lot for all.